Good morning again. My name is Ben. I'm the assistant pastor here at Shady Grove, if you weren't here earlier. And this morning we're going to be continuing our series on the Psalms out of Psalm 88. And so you can use the scripture in your bulletin or your Bibles. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you, there are uh, the blue paperback Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can take those out, and that is actually our gift to you, and so we're hoping that you will take one of those uh, if you don't own a Bible for yourself. There's also some out um, in the narthex outside. Um, that's our fancy word for lobby. So, um, Well, if you received um, my email this week, then uh, you know already what we're going to be talking about. Um, this morning. Uh, and just in case you didn't get a chance to read that email for yourself or you aren't on our email list yet, um, I just want to kind of open up by sharing again some of the things that I had written in that email uh, before we jump into the text together. So let me start with just some uh, statistics for you guys. Um, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, at least 18% of the U.S. general population suffers from some kind of anxiety disorder. Major depressive disorder is the leading cause of disability in adults ages 15 to 43, affecting more than 16 million adults. And these statistics, they seem to only go up when you look at the younger generations. According to the National Association on Mental Illness, suicide is the third leading cause of death in our young people. Everything points to the fact that they it's only going up every year. From 2010 to 2015, depression in teenagers surged by 33%. Hospitalizations due to suicide attempts have doubled. The American College Health Association reports that 62% of college freshmen report overwhelming anxiety. And that's up from 50% in 2011. Just so everyone knows that I'm not coming at these issues of depression and anxiety from some abstract, you know, perspective. This is very, very personal to me and to my family. Um, didn't know my mom was going to be here today. Um, but, um... We've been dealing with this issue in our family for a long time. Um, uh, this April will make 18 years since my brother took his life. And uh, I know it's a day we're never gonna forget. And uh, little did I know that on that day, the Lord was setting me on a course to preach this sermon here today to you. And so um, good things come from suffering. Um, but not even just with my brother, but even in my own life, this has been a struggle for me. Um, several years ago, now a number of years ago, I started suffering um, out of the blue, anxiety and panic attacks. And you know, I've been on the medication. Um, you know, I was on medication for a while. Um, and since then, I've even walked through my own dark times of depression of my soul. And so if you're in this room this morning and you're someone who suffers um, from depression or anxiety, or as I'll call it this morning, depression, anxiety, I hyphenate the two words. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that I share in your burdens. And as hard as it can be to trust others right now, I hope I can earn your trust this morning. 
as I speak on this issue. What I want to suggest to you this morning, church, is that depression anxiety is going to be the silent epidemic for my generation and the one that follows me. We have a crisis on our hands. And so I want to share with you the three underlying convictions that I have before I begin this sermon this morning. First, I believe that the prevalence of these issues in our current cultural moment demands that the church speak on these issues. Second, I believe we still have time to get ahead of these issues before they reach a critical mass in our society. In other words, I think it's going to get worse, a lot worse. But I say that as cause for encouragement because that means we still have time to get ahead of it. Finally, I believe deep in my bones that the scriptures speak to the reality of depression and anxiety with force and with clarity. I believe that the scriptures show us how God meets us in our time of need and how he is compassionate towards his children who are suffering in this way. And so with all of that being said, this morning we are going to look at Psalm 88 and use that as an opportunity to begin a conversation together as a church. And so please turn your attention to Psalm 88 with me. This is God's word. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out night and day before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. But I, O oh Lord, cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has overswept me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Father, 
Make yourself known to us this morning. Your people cry out to you night and day. And we trust you that you alone can save us. Amen. The conclusion um, of this psalm is darkness. You may have noticed the word dark or darkness repeated in the psalm three times. Verses 6, 13, and 18. In fact, darkness is the last word of the whole psalm. I think maybe if you could pick just one word to describe Psalm 88, it would be darkness. It's this idea, this word for darkness, it's this idea of the place, this dark place on the road where travelers are lost and bandits are awaiting them to attack them violently. That's the idea. That's the darkness. And so in keeping with this theme of this psalm, I want us to look at three things that I think this psalm can tell us about darkness, particularly as it relates to the experience of depression and anxiety. So first, I think we see that darkness is a reality of life. Second, darkness is a time for spiritual growth. And finally, darkness is not the end. Darkness is a reality of life, and that's a conclusion that is inescapable from this psalm. Darkness, pain, and suffering are the reality of life. And what we can see in this psalm is that darkness can take the form of an external, circumstantial pain. It can also be an inner turmoil, a sorrow, a grief, or a despair in our soul. Look at what our psalmist says. We don't know exactly what his outward circumstances were, but what we do see, particularly in verses 4 to 8, is that our psalmist is close to death and his friends have abandoned him. But he also speaks of this inner darkness. In verse 3, my soul is full of troubles. Verse 14, why do you hide your face from me? Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Darkness is his reality. And it can be ours too. And it can last for a really, really long time. Look at how persistent the psalmist is. I cry out night and day before you. Every day I call upon you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. And despite his persistence, darkness does not lift. We read this morning the story of Elijah's great depression. After this great victory he has against the prophets of Baal, he calls down fire from heavens, from the heavens. And then in an instant, with a death threat, a letter in the mail, boom, down and out. Kill me, Lord. I think this is an experience that many people in this room can relate to, going from this incredible emotional high to this great, deep, low, seemingly in an instant. Did you pick up on how the Lord ministers to Elijah in this psalm? It never ceases to amaze me. 
he sends Elijah a friend to minister to his physical needs in the angel. And then he comes, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in the whisper of compassion and gentleness. Isn't that incredible? For 40 days straight, Elijah stays in the darkness of a cave. And I think many of us can relate to that. Just want to stay in my room, stay in the darkness. I don't want to leave. But friends, stories like Elijah's and passages like this psalm that we are reading today, they tell us that God knows our struggles and he understands them. So he leaves these pages for us in scripture to teach us and to know that while darkness may be a reality for us, he is there to meet us with compassion and with grace. Friends, if the darkness can be a reality for a prophet like Elijah, then can't it certainly be a reality for us? I mean, isn't this the uniform teaching of Scripture? All of the great figures in the Scripture suffer, uh, suffered immensely from both an outer and inner darkness. And don't we see this foremost in Jesus? Was he not the man of sorrows? And if Jesus in the garden while he is praying, when wave comes upon wave crashing down on him, when he no longer feels these sweet comforts of God's mercy that he has known before, when he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then when that is our cry, we don't need to wonder as if something strange is happening to us, do we? This is something that we need to come to terms with. Americans, we are particularly naive about this. We are. We are. Joshua Wolf Shank, he's an author of a book, which I'll talk about more in a moment, but he said, and I have this quote in your bulletin, he says that anything less than constant cheer has come to be seen as a violation of the American religion. And he's not talking about any one particular, you know, like Christianity or Islam or Judaism or anything like that. He's saying that Americans as a people group worship cheer and happiness. But this attitude, you know, it's not just out there. It works its way in here too. More often than not, the Christian response to depression and anxiety can be more harmful than it is helpful so often what tends to happen is we start saying things to people like, Christians shouldn't get depressed. Christians don't get anxious because that would mean you don't have faith. Or as one of my mentors said to me this week, he said, Christians often sound like this, snap out of it. What have you got to complain about? Jesus loves you. So often we blame people for their suffering before we even take the time to ask questions and understand for ourselves. And the more we respond to people in this way, the more we create a culture in our churches 
where it is not okay to be weak, where it is not okay to struggle, where it is not a safe place to be stuck in Psalm 88 for yourself. John Calvin, one of the great uh, Reformation theologians, we often quote him to talk about these great doctrines of, you know, our, our faith. He had a lot of other good things to say too, you know. He was a marvelous pastor for his people. And he has some pretty strong words for Christians who deny the realities of depression and anxiety in this life. I'm going to quote him and it's going to be on the screen behind me, but I want to warn you that what he has to say about this It's pretty blunt. Here's what he has to say. Among Christians, too, there are those who hold similar views. They believe it is sinful not only to groan and weep, but even to be downcast and anxious. Such outlandish ideas are the work of lazy individuals who spend their time in speculation rather than in honest work and who produce nothing but empty fantasies. It's pretty strong, isn't it? And what he's saying is, is that anyone who's done their serious work of reading the Bible for themselves could not possibly conclude that Christians don't get depressed. They could not possibly conclude that Christians don't get anxious. Such a conclusion is lazy, and it's nothing but an empty fantasy. And so I believe that the summons for us as a church this morning in response to Psalm 88 is to grow in creating a place where it is safe to be stuck in Psalm 88. My dream for us as a church is to become an army of counselors led by those who have suffered themselves and who are suffering even now, who march out into this world, into this dark, dark, hurting world to take the light and the hope of Christ to the people who need to hear it. That's my dream for our church. And my prayer for this sermon is that maybe God's Spirit is stirring up some of you even now to say, I want to take part in that. And so a first step for you today could just be going out to that table, picking up those articles, picking up one of those books on Amazon, reading it and challenging yourself and asking yourself, how can I contribute to our church in this way? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Well, once we're ready to accept that darkness is a reality of life, We're ready to learn how these seasons of great pain can also be times of great spiritual growth. You know, when people think of Psalm 88, they often characterize it by its ending. And this is because it's the only psalm. You could maybe argue that it's one of two psalms together with Psalm 39. But it's one of maybe two psalms that end in lament. See, there's over 40 psalms of lament in the book of Psalms, but all the rest of them, they may go to deep and dark places, but they always end on praise. Not here. Not here. The psalm ends by saying, you have made my companions darkness. And you know what he's saying here, right? Let's, let's translate that a little bit. Darkness is a better friend than you are, God. 
Darkness is closer to me than you are, God. There's no nice, clean, kind reverence to be found here. Just the brutal realities of life as our psalmist is turning toward his God and expressing his deep pains. But you know, what is often overlooked in this psalm is that exact point. That even in his deep darkness, he is still turning to his God. Even in this deep, deep darkness, he still trusts that if anyone is going to save him, if anyone is going to hear him, it will be his God. In verse 1, he cries out, O Lord, God of my salvation. He begs the Lord for his prayer to be heard. If anyone will save him, it's going to be his God. You know, our society so values strength and happiness that those who suffer from depression and anxiety get the impression that they're damaged goods. They're done for. Nothing good can come from your depression, so don't even try. You know what? Um, You have this problem in your life, and so before you can be of use to us, why don't you go over, over there in the corner, solve your problems, and then get back to us? Once you're cheery again, you can come back into society. It hasn't always been this way, though. There was a time before words like depression and anxiety were used as sort of the major diagnostic vocabulary in our culture. The word used to describe people like us was melancholy. And melancholic people had what was understood to be a fearful gift. The burden that was recognized was that melancholic people could have this this sadness, this gloom, this despair, this hypochondria, this great nervousness about them. But they also had a gift, a gift for depth, a gift for wisdom, a gift for great perseverance, for energy, for action, and even Genius. Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest presidents to ever walk you know, this earth. He was one of the greatest presidents to serve our country. And he led us through this dark, dark time in our history. He was also one of the most melancholic men to ever walk the face of the earth. In his book, Lincoln's Melancholy, uh, author Joshua Wolf Shank, he details some of these events in Lincoln's life. You know, he could give in to such mania and depression and anxiety that his friends put him on suicide watch numerous times in his life. Lincoln once confessed to his colleagues that he wouldn't carry a knife around in his pocket for fear of what he might do with it. And yet, it was because of his melancholy that he became equipped to lead our country through a great turbulent time. This is what the author Joshua Wolfshank has to say about this, and I think he puts this beautifully. He says this, many popular philosophies propose that suffering can be beaten simply, quickly, and clearly. Popular biographies and stories often express the same view, but Lincoln's melancholy doesn't lend itself to such a narrative. 
No point exists after which the melancholy dissolved. Whatever greatness Lincoln achieved cannot be explained as a triumph over personal suffering. Rather, it must be accounted for as an outgrowth of the same system that produced that suffering. This is not a story of transformation, but one of integration. Lincoln didn't do great work because he solved the problem of his melancholy. The problem of his melancholy was all the more fuel for the fire of his great work. End quote. Well, what I love about Lincoln's story here is that I believe it actually illustrates a very biblical principle for us. You see, the Bible never portrays suffering as something we're going to have total victory over in this life. Never. The Bible never says that your primary goal in suffering is to conquer it. That's not what it says. What it does say is that our suffering and our darkness is the fire where wisdom, righteousness, character, and godliness are forged. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12? Let me remind you. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of my revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Today, words like depression or anxiety carry such a negative connotation that they're largely viewed as a problem you need to solve. And so those of us who are afflicted by these things, we go round and round and round again just looking for the cure for what ails us. And we will try anything. You know what Lincoln tried in his day? They would purge his body with poisoning, with sweating, with bleeding to try and get the darkness out of him. We will try anything. You know, I've been there. Believe me, I've been there. When I was first coming to terms with my own depression and my anxiety, I felt so ashamed. Because I said to myself, who's going to want me? Who would want a depressed pastor? Aren't pastors supposed to be energetic and charismatic and outgoing and cheery and happy all the time? Of course, I didn't know then that all the research suggests that at least 70% of American pastors are depressed constantly. <laughs> and so I exhausted myself, put on a strong face, put on a strong front at home in my marriage, a strong front in the church, And I tried 
to fix myself because I just wanted things to go back to how they were before. Before the panic attacks came. Before I felt like a useless horror to my friends. Can't things just go back to how they used to be? But can I let you in on a little secret that I've learned? Things never go back to how they used to be. They don't. Your physical symptoms might be alleviated, the sleeplessness might go away, the panic attacks might cease, your body might find rest, but your soul will never be the same. How could it? Once you've walked through Psalm 88 for yourself, how can you ever be the same person again? When you look at God square in the face and you say to him, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your dreadful assaults destroy me, you overwhelm me with your waves. How can you ever be the same person again? You can't. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Do you want to become a more empathetic person? Do you want to be someone who can bring great comfort to other people and their sufferings? Do you want to be someone who can weather the storms of life and teach others to do the same? Do you want to be someone who has a depth to their wisdom and who can bring that wisdom to others in their time of need? Do you want to be a great evangelist to the 62% of young people who are struggling with anxiety? God can do all of that and more if you turn to him. And then we can say like Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. And today, that might look like turning to God in prayer and saying to him, God, darkness is a closer friend to me than you are right now. And that's an okay place to be today. That's an okay place to start. You know, it's given me great comfort as a Christian to look to the life of Charles Spurgeon. He's the great 19th century preacher that we often quote around here, and we quote him because his title that we give him is the Prince of Preachers. It's a pretty nice title, isn't it? Prince of Preachers. Yet his life, too, was one of great inner and outer darkness. He once said in one of his sermons, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you will ever get to the extremes of wretchedness that I go to. This is one of the reasons why if you familiarize yourself with his work, you'll find that he can speak so thoughtfully about the darkness of the soul because he knew it well. One of my favorite insights of his was he once said something to the effect, I couldn't find the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of this, our physical pains, our outward pains of our body, they lead us to the cross. But the inner pains of our soul lead us to the garden. And what he meant by that 
is that for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, darkness is not the end. Because even when we feel like our depression or our anxiety is overwhelming us, God is leading us to the garden. There, where, like Elijah, he cried out to his father. But you know the big difference between Elijah and our Savior? Elijah, in his deep pain, cried out to his God, Lord, take my life. And God said, no. My child, I love you too much to do that. And in the garden, Jesus cried out to his God and he said, Father, if it be your will, spare my life. And our God looked at him and said, no, I love my children too much to do that. And so there in the garden, he was overwhelmed with such anxiety that it could have been said his sweat were like great drops of blood. And there his friends really did abandon him. There he really was alone. And there his father really did turn his face away. And so as real as our darkness feels for us, and it is real, darkness is real. As real as it feels to us, we can know with confidence that it will never be the final reality for us. As deep as our darkness goes, God's grace goes even deeper. Jesus got true and final darkness. Why? So that we could know, like Elijah, that he is not, that our Father is not ashamed of us in our own depression, that he loves us, that he surrounds us with other comforters, and that he is there to meet us with his mercy and his grace in our time of need. But there is a problem for us. You see, there's one way that we can read this psalm where we ask ourselves the questions. How have I contributed to darkness? How have I contributed to someone else's darkness? How have I just contributed to the darkness of this world? And if we read the psalm in this way, then we see that all of us in this room are guilty. We've all turned our backs on companions when they need us most. We've all acted towards others in our greed and our anger and our pride. We've turned to things of this world for our comfort and then wondered why God doesn't spare us from the consequences of our actions. And the Bible is clear that all of these things we do, what we call sin, it stores up for us real darkness in a place where we really are abandoned. Where God really does 
turn his face away. But Jesus takes all of that on himself so that we might not have to. Do you trust him in that this morning? As deep as you might feel in your darkness this morning, do you trust that Jesus took true and final darkness for you? Friends, if you could only see the mercy and love of God for you in Jesus Christ this morning, if you could only see it like you see me, there would not be a soul in this room who doesn't leave here without hope. If you could only see it, resolve this morning to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified and see how God meets you with love and not with shame, with grace and not anger, with mercy and not disappointment. There are so many things we could have talked about this morning as we began this conversation on depression and anxiety, and I, and I hope that's what this morning was, the beginning of a conversation. Like I said, there's going to be a table out back after the service where you can go and look at some resources and pick some up for yourself, and I really, really hope you will do that so that we can start to talk with each other. How can we confront this issue in our church and in our community? And if you're in this room this morning and you're suffering, if you are in the darkness, I just want to say to you, it can and does get better. And it needs to start by talking with someone. Just like Elijah needed a friend, we need friends to talk to. There's going to be names out there. You can talk with me. You can talk with any of the names out there on that table in confidence. But please talk to somebody. Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult, a complex, and a personal issue. Lord, we often just want how-tos, how to fix it. And life just isn't that simple. But your word teaches us that you are never ashamed of us, even when we feel like that might be the case, even when we feel like in our anxiety or our depression that we are a horror to you or a horror to others. Father, I pray for those in this room who may have thought before this morning that Christians don't get depressed. Christians don't get anxious. I pray that you would teach them in that and show them that your word says otherwise and help us to grow in being compassionate towards others. Father, I pray for those who are suffering this morning that you would lift their drooping heads just like you have lifted mine. That even though the darkness may not lift today, it may not lift tomorrow. Make yourself known to them 
there. Be the God of their salvation. We cry out to you, Lord, night and day. Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.